often when I come across a parable in our lectionary from Matthew's gospel, I will turn to a tattered volume on my bookshelf called The Gospel of Solentename. This book is a series of recorded conversations about the gospel of Matthew between campesinos, subsistence farmers in Nicaragua. These conversations were recorded by a Catholic priest, Father Cardinal, uh, during the Somoza dictatorship. The wealthy Somoza family ruled Nicaragua for 40 years. They amassed wealth through brutality and repression, and they established dominance in the same way. Land grabbing and corporate bribes and industrial monopolies tore apart the economy and the lives of ordinary people. In 1977, the Somoza regime burned down the monastery where Father Cardinal lived. But before that, one day, Father Cardinal decided to try a new way of engaging the local community in discipleship. He invited the campesinos to his monastery for worship. But instead of having a homily by a learned priest, the sermon would be the voice of the people. They would discuss what they heard in the scriptures. Week after week, the campesinos would row across the lake and sit in the circle and talk about what they heard. And when they came to the parable of the talents from today, their reaction was uniform. This parable is lousy. <laughs> Father, Father Cardinal says, tell me more. And this is the conversation that they had. Um, Soy el Padre Cardinal. I am Father Cardinal in this scenario. Because it's about speculating with money, something we all condemn, like putting money out at interest, giving the money to others so that they can work and work with it and hand over the profits to the owner of the money. It's really a very ugly example that Jesus gives us of exploitation, of speculation with money, of pure capitalism. Well, I don't know. Besides, the example is lousier because of what the servant says who hid the money, that he was a hard master, that he gathered where he hadn't put anything, that he harvested what he didn't sow. That time there were only masters and servants, right? He had to talk like that so they'd understand. At that time, all the servants had to be working with the master's talents or money, and that's why he had to give that example. We, he was seeing the exploitation there was in the society of the time, and that's going on now, much worse with the banks and the finances of today. There's, there's the bank. There's the bank there. When Jesus uses a money metaphor, you better pay attention. Money is so significant in the New Testament that it's the only thing that we learn is a direct rival to God. The only thing. So when we hear a parable about money, we know the stakes are very, very high. Last week, we were in Matthew hearing about teenagers going to a party. And this week, we're plunged into the world of finance. A master hands out these big chunks of money to three of his household slaves, a unit of money called a talent. Our word for talent, in innate ability we can cultivate, that actually comes from this parable, not the other way around. 
And that, I think, that very strong interpretation might lead us astray to some of the tangible realities about money, economic realities, that were faced by the disciples who are hearing the story from Jesus on the Mount of Olives. A talent is money. It is a lot of money. One talent is half of what a laborer would make over the course of his entire lifetime. The Campesino theologians are right. This is a story that shows us a ruthless economic system of exploitation. A wealthy landover hands out obscene amounts of money to his slaves. He gives no instruction, no criteria. He offers no insight about what they should do, and then he leaves. And while he's gone, the first two slaves involve themselves in some kind of trade and manage to double their profits. That is a lot of profit. <laughs> now, how would you manage to make that much money with no loss in first century Palestine? You would do it through amassing land. In the ancient world, the wealthy acquired the ancestral lands of the poor. And if farmers refused to sell this land, the wealthy had a way to force the sale. In a time of famine or poor harvest, these elites would loan out to the farmers and they would foreclose on their land once they couldn't repay these exorbitant amounts of um, interest rate. It was so dishonorable that a master for a master to engage in this kind of exploitation, that he would give it to his household slaves and pretend he had nothing to do with it. Without hesitation, the slaves knew exactly what to do to double their profits. They ransacked the poorest in the community for literally generations of wealth. The third slave, knowing this expectation of the master, expecting something for nothing, puts the talent aside and returns it to the master when he, when he gets back. The first two slaves are rewarded. They enter into their master's joy. The third is punished. The reason? He should have at least taken it to a bank and invested in it for a small return. As a result, he is thrown into darkness. To impugn the character of the master even more, first century listeners to this story would be aghast, aghast to hear that the last servant is in trouble because he doesn't engage in usury which is not allowed of Jewish people. Friends, there are no actual banks in the ancient world. The system is really just coming into fruition in Rome. <clears throat> what the master most likely is angry about is that the slave did not give his talent to the money changers. Yes, those same money changers whom Jesus just drove out of the temple a week earlier. <laughs> the campesinos have much more in common with the first century listeners of this story than many of us here today. They knew what it was like to live under intense economic exploitation, and they rightly hear there is something horribly wrong in the story. The master in the story is eye-poppingly rich. And Jesus does not like wealth. 
You may remember that only a few verses earlier, Jesus tells us that the poor are blessed while the woe to the rich. Jesus dislikes the idolatry of money so much that when he needs a coin, he has to fish it out of the mouth of an actual bass. We learn that the masters live out this credo that is in direct opposition to what Jesus tells us shapes the reality of our world, which isn't to whom much is given, much is expected, but instead the first shall be last and the last shall be first. As it is, there's a biblical scholar named William Herzog who renamed this story, the parable of the whistleblower. He says that this is a story about two slaves who readily and without hesitation enrich themselves through their master, through usury and repression. But then we meet a third slave. He blows the whistle on the whole business. He refuses to participate. He does so through a kind of nonviolent resistance, bearing the talent and giving it back to the person it came from. Perhaps he does so because he fears his master, but it's just as likely that the third slave fears God. But then he goes a step further. The third slave tells the master to his face the truth about who he is, about his exploitation, about his ruthlessness. And because of that, the slave is punished, ripped from the household, and cast out. Friends, there are many ways to be thrown out into the darkness. And one of them is to tell the truth about the world. This isn't the final story in this chapter from Matthew. And it isn't the final word. Matthew's gospel continues. In the next moment, we're taken from this troubling parable to the scene where the Son of Man comes in glory. He gathers before the throne of God all the nations of the earth, and he separates them like sheep and goats. And then to the righteous, he says this. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Beloved, that is the measure by which the nations of the world are measured. It is a measurement of compassion and justice. The word worthless is used to describe the final servant when he's thrown out. And this word also has roots in economic language. To be worthless is to lack economic value. The King James version of this story calls the third servant the unprofitable servant. He's the one who doesn't create a profit. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. None of this will turn a profit. And if you do it well enough, we're likely to find ourselves telling the truth about the world, about economic exploitation, about the powers of this world. 
if we spend enough time with Jesus, we'll find we're actually wasting the time of the empire, wasting its profits. And that might even get us thrown out into the darkness. But friends, that's where Jesus will meet you. Amen.